0: Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health Podcast, and I've got a pretty prestigious guest, Dr. Michael Bruce, the sleep doctor. Uh, Michael J. Bruce, PhD, here's his bio. He's a clinical psychologist and a diplomate of the American Board of Sleep Medicine and a fellow of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. Uh, He's been on the Dr. Oz show 39 times more than I have, which is zero. Uh, He's an author of The Power of When, The Sleep Doctor's Diet Plan, Beauty Sleep, and he's done hundreds of presentations to Fortune 500, and 100 companies, and uh, in the sleep world, he's the king. So glad to speak to him, uh, Dr. Bruce. How you doing?
1: I'm doing great. I love that introduction. I've never been called a king before. I'm going to take that moniker with pride.
0: Well, good. good. So, what? Yeah. You know, why have you made uh, such a huge presence in the sleep world? Like what is? What attracted you to it? And uh, you know, why do you work in it? You-
1: yeah, and you know it's interesting. You know you don't when you when you're going to school, you don't grow up and, you know, at least 20 years ago and say, "Hey, I want to grow up and be a sleep doctor," right? It doesn't that's usually not the way it goes. Um right. but it it really all happened during my residency. I was uh fortunate enough to take a rotation in sleep disorders, and um it was my first rotation and by the third day, I absolutely fell in love with clinical sleep medicine, and I knew that this was what I wanted to do with the rest of my career. And I think the reason for that was because I really get i'm very fortunate I really get an opportunity to help people very very quickly um so it's one of those situations where in medicine a lot of times it can take weeks, months, even years to see any sort of treatment gains i, I sometimes mm. I can help somebody in less than twenty four hours and that's what's so oh, well. fascinating for me so its it's pretty amazing
0: and then you know I know we get throw out statistics, but you know just how pervasive are sleep issues. In the United States and then around the world.
1: Sure. So we think that the the numbers are a little bit exaggerated in the United States as opposed to rest of the parts of the world, but not by much. Roughly a third of Americans are having problems falling asleep or staying asleep at night, with ten percent of those people being chronic. So just looking at that, if there's roughly four hundred million people in the world, I mean in the United States, you're talking about a hundred and twenty million people every night that are having problems with sleep. From a sleep apnea standpoint, we're talking somewhere between 12 and 20% of the population. So that could be up to another 40 million people. So now we're at 160 million people. I mean, if you add in something like restless leg syndrome and periodic limb movement and narcolepsy, we're probably well into the 200 million. So literally one out of two people probably have something going on with their sleep. It may not be officially a disorder, but it's certainly something that's uh, treatable and uh, fixable.
0: Yeah, that's crazy. Huh. I know. So um, what what do you see as, you know, today we're, we're just about here in 2019 almost. What are yeah. the um, current and most recent trends or drivers of sleep? What's happening right now that's either causing you alarm or is making you feel better? What's happening right now with sleep?
1: Well, you know, in the world of sleep right now, we seem to be looking at three or four different kind of major areas. So one is sleep and cannabis. That's certainly uh, something uh, that we see on a, a much more uh, research basis now that we're starting to see cannabis be legalized in states here in the, in the US. Um, we see a lot of information about sleep and the, and the gut microbiome. That's information that's been coming out recently as well. Um, and then also a lot of stuff surrounding sleep and uh, school-age children and uh, school start time changes, Um, their chronobiology, sort of how their bodies work in relation to sleep. So we're really starting to come into our own. I mean, as a matter of fact, this last year's Nobel Prize in medicine was given to circadian researchers, so sleep researchers. So we really feel like sleep is something that's coming into the forefront now, and and a lot of people are taking notice.
0: Yeah, what's happening with uh, sleep in the microbiome? I've done a lot of interviews on the microbiome,
1: but never in terms of sleep. yeah. So we now know that the microbiome actually works on a um, on a circadian cycle. So that being said, um, what we know is that it works uh, on a very specific biological clock, and so when you enter food into that system, depending upon what type of food it is, it can certainly have a pretty major. Um, disruptive effect if your if your microbiome isn't ready for it. Not to mention whatever the substance is, but just the timing of it appears to actually be important as well. Um, the the research is very young, um, and so we don't have a lot of answers yet. But rather, a lot of people are now starting to ask those questions.
0: Does that mean you're seeing a different uh, biome for you know uh, larks versus owls? Do they tend to have different bacteria, or is it? more of well actually I guess along the same lines are certain chronotypes um, very poorly reactive if they eat late or if they eat early yeah do they coincide exactly
1: so so like when you and I started our conversation you mentioned that you sleep in um, and that you keep some crazy hours right so my guess is you're probably right. closer to a night owl or what I call a wolf Um we now know that th- that and by the way I'm a night owl as well we now know okay. that from a microbiome perspective, um, our microbiomes are actually far more agitated because our systems are much more interested in getting food on a different schedule than uh, what everybody else's schedule might be. Um, and that schedule is actually significantly later, which pushes everything you know, later into the evening. And so when you eat at the wrong time, your microbiome isn't ready, depending upon your chronotype and it can get upset. Now, the opposite would hold true for somebody who's an early bird or what you call a lark I call them a lion those people should be eating very early in the mornings and be having an early dinner because again that's when their microbiome is ready to accept those substances and be able to digest them appropriately and all the things that kind of go along with that so there's it and again this is very young research so we don't have a lot of definitive answers right now I've written a couple of blogs if uh, if people are interested we can put them in the show notes if you head over to my website the sleepdoctor.com. You go into my blogs and you search microbiome, you'll find two or three articles of kind of what's the latest and the greatest, but it really has a lot to do with food timing um, and our body's ability to have a healthy microbiome.
0: Yeah, that's super interesting. Wow.
1: Okay. Yeah.
0: And and you mentioned um, a prize was just given, a Nobel Prize for uh, circadian rhythm science. So uh, what new things have been discovered about circadian rhythms?
1: Well, what, they, what these researchers discovered basically was that our mitochondria, which are kind of the energy um, powerhouses of the cell, are all on a circadian rhythm, and they were able to identify that and show how they could influence that. And so mitochondria really are what ages us over the course of time. And so being able to know and understand how they work can give us tremendous insight into how to affect them. Uh, both positively and negatively. Obviously, we wouldn't want to do negatively, but positively for sure. So um, and again, very early in the research, but very significant to be able to understand that the power output, if you will, from these organisms within us uh, really runs on a very particular chronotypical cycle. And, uh, and that's important because when you're when you're off sync and you're not you know working with your chronotype, all kinds of other bodily functions kind of go a little crazy.
0: Yeah, are there just two chronotypes? Or, um,
1: and is it the chronotype not. a spectrum? Okay. So I would argue... So first of all, in my research, I've, I've found that um, uh, there's four. So there's early birds, which I've renamed lions. There's middle of the road, which used to be called hummingbirds, but I call them bears. There's night owls, which I call wolves. And then there's insomniacs, which I call dolphins. So I would argue that there's at least four chronotypes. And I can show that genetically speaking through genetic material. So if you go to 23andMe or Ancestry.com or one of those, you can actually learn um, with, uh, with pretty good certainty which chronotype you are, and then you can adi- adapt to that schedule. In my book, The Power of When, what I do is I teach people, and, and you don't have to necessarily go and get genetic material to do it. You can actually do it online on my quiz. Uh, it's not going to be as accurate, but it's pretty close. Uh, and uh, what you'll learn is what your chronotype is. And then I teach you the exact perfect times of day to do certain things, whether it's have sex, eat, um, ask your boss for a raise, take your dog for a walk, go to a yoga class. All of those things can actually be determined based on your genetic chronotype.
0: Yeah. So I think you're kind of answering a question I've had for a while. Um, you know, I've, For instance, like I've been going to sleep at like three in the morning for like 20 something years. And I feel fine. Yep. I get eight hours of sleep. I get up, you know. Yep. And I've I've Nothing spoken to a that. lot of, well, I've spoken to a lot of people in the sleep world, and usually they're horrified when I tell them this. But what I want to know is this: I've heard, oh, um, this hormone will tend to peak at this time, and this one will, you know, will trough at this time. What happens with, for instance, someone of a different chronotype? Do my hormones peak and trough at the same times, no matter what, or do they adjust because of my sleep and waking times?
1: So this is exactly the what my book is all about. So first of all, I don't know who you've been speaking to, but they're either uneducated or they're not willing to look at the new science because what you're doing is just fine. So let me just be clear about that. If you can work a schedule that works for you and you can go to bed at three and wake up at 11 and be good to go, that's great. Don't don't change a thing. Um, it you're, It's all relative, right? And so As an example, let's say you're a night owl, which you are, but you're getting forced to wake up at 6 a.m. every day for some job or something like that. What will what will happen is your body will try to adapt, but it doesn't do a great job with it, and that's when we see things like fatigue. That's when we see things like inflammation. That's when we see things like uh, an upset microbiome. So it's really going against Mother Nature, to be honest with you, in in many different ways. Um, But you've really kind of done it right because You've identified that you are a a night owl um, and you're keeping that schedule. So that means you have a far greater likelihood of having far more healthy things happen to you than not. It it really seems to happen, especially with the night owls, that when they force themselves into a different schedule, that's when the the problems really occur.
0: Okay, that's good to know. So you've seen that, um, let's say, you know, if I've been told uh, cortisol, you know, falls to its lowest value at four in the morning, but because of my sleep schedule... My cortisol may not fall to its lowest, lowest value until 6 or 7 in the morning, possibly. Would that happen, maybe? Yep.
1: Probably later, to be honest with you. So when you look at cortisol levels, um, and they, drop, they do drop for like a person who's a bear or kind of in between an early bird and a night owl. Yeah, you usually see somewhere between 3 and 4 in the morning is when we see cortisol hitting its lowest point. Then it starts to climb. Um, because it has to get big. It has to increase in order to pull you out of a state of unconsciousness event, eventually. So what I would tell you is you're going to bed at, most people go to bed between 10:30 and 11, right? And so if your cortisol is down at four, so that's a roughly five hours. So if you're going to bed at 3 a.m., then your cortisol is probably down at 8 a.m. So it, it's kind of relative sure. to when you go to bed and your chronotype.
0: Well, it's good to know. Yeah. yeah. and I, I, You know, people listening will be obviously – you know, sleeping when they sleep, but I've noticed there's a lot of uh, peer pressure and social pressure when it comes to sleeping. Like, you know, again, I've been told, oh my God, you, you go to sleep then that's that's terrible or someone's jealous or they say you should get up early. There's a lot of you shoulds in the sleep world. And I think that negatively affects a lot of people because they feel pressured that they're a bad yep. person if they don't get up early or if they don't do this or do that.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm officially here to tell everybody that's listening. That if you're, if you're a night owl, like the two of us, and you sleep in, there's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing bad about it. People don't understand. People think that everybody's the same. And the truth of the matter is, is nothing could be further from the truth. And by the way, the amount of sleep that you get is, is uh, determined by your chronotype and your genetics as well. Um, not everybody needs eight hours. I go to bed at midnight. I wake up at 6.17 every single day. That's what I do. And I've done it for my entire adult life. And I'm perfectly fine. I'm in great health. Uh, I'm a sleep doctor, for God's sakes, right? So, you know, when you look mm. at this, you you can't go by these hard and fast rules that either the media or some friend might have told you. Talk with a professional. Uh, you're welcome to come to my website and read my materials. Everything I do is 100% science-based with real research behind it.
0: That's great. Okay. And I have another question about, um, I don't know what you call it, I guess, the onset time until you you know, pass huh? out and you're sleeping. Um, yep. You know, when I've considered naps and someone says, oh, it'd take a 20-minute nap. Well, I think, uh-huh. well, what if it takes me 17 minutes to fall asleep? So, you know, or at night, um, let's say I've been told I should get eight hours, but what's my onset? Let's say it takes me 10 minutes to fall asleep or 40 minutes. You know, how do you accommodate how long or even find out how long it takes you to fall asleep and then accommodate your schedule so you sleep properly?
1: Sure. So, first of all, you shouldn't get stuck to... Close to the hard and fast numbers, right? Your body will get the amount of sleep that it requires um, if you let it. So I, I would say don't worry too much. Oh, is it take me eight minutes to fall asleep versus 12 versus 20? That might not be nearly as important. If you're super curious, there are some really good tracking devices out on the market these days that will help you with that. Uh, one of the ones I like is called Sleep Score. Uh, it's an app that's available on iPhone and Android. You download it and it, it comes right out of your phone, it's super accurate. Um, I've been really impressed with, with what's going on with it for quite a while, and um, I think it's very interesting. Um, and you can tell exactly how long it takes you to fall asleep, and then you can kind of take that into account. So if you're gonna nap, and you only wanna nap for 25 minutes or so, set an alarm for 35 minutes from when you start, and you know, kick back and relax. It's not so much about the exact number of minutes that occur. It's really more about your body's ability to calm down, relax, reduce the amount of stimuli coming in, um, and kind of reset itself. And napping is great unless you have insomnia. If you've got insomnia, you shouldn't be napping.
0: Okay, got it. So what are some of the um, low-hanging fruit that you can modulate or change to improve the uh, quality of your sleep? Let's say you can't affect duration in your current circumstance. You only get a certain number of hours. How do you make it better?
1: So that's the right question to ask. So one of the things, so as an example, I have a program um, that's called um, the Exhausted Executive, how to sleep for peak performance. And I work with you know Fortune 100, Fortune 500 uh, guys and gals, uh, and I teach them how to improve the quality of their sleep because in many cases, the quantity is something that they cannot uh, really affect. They only have a certain number of hours in the day, right? And so one of the easiest things as a general guideline Um, is exercise. 20 to 30 minutes of cardiovascular exercise each day will absolutely positively improve your sleep. Um, There's no question about it. The research on it is very, very clear. That's number one. Number two is the consistency of your wake-up time. Um, I wake up every day at 6.17. That's just what my body does. It works well for me. I hate it because I'd love to sleep until eight o'clock because I'm definitely more of a night owl. Um, But that's just what my body does for me. But the consistency has allowed me to sleep less and less over the course of many years. It used to be that I slept for seven, seven and a half hours. Now I sleep for six hours and 15 minutes or so, simply because of the level of consistency of my wake-up time uh, in particular. The other thing is getting sunlight in the mornings. So many people wake up and they've got this kind of brain fog and they can't kind of wake up and it's very difficult for them. Um, Usually that has to do with the continuation of the production of melatonin. So the easiest way to stop melatonin production right when you open up your eyes is to get 15 minutes of some form of sunlight or light therapy. Um, There are many different light therapy boxes that you can get out there uh, on the marketplace. Um, The one I like is called Journey, J-O-U-R-N-I. It's available on Amazon. Um, I actually have it on right now as we're talking. Um, so, I, you know, I believe that light and sunlight and light therapy will be super helpful for people in the morning time. So three things that people can do to improve the quality of their sleep is exercise daily, wake up at the same time every day, including the weekends. I know that sucks, but the truth of the matter is the more consistent your circadian schedule is, the better. Um, and then getting some form of sunlight uh, or light therapy early in the morning. All three of those will certainly improve your sleep at night. I guess the final one would also be um, hydration is if you have a hydrated body is a well-sleeping body, but a dehydrated body doesn't do well at all. And then of course, caffeine is the other thing that's a big factor as well. And so people need to be careful and to stop drinking caffeinated beverages by about 2 p.m. This way it gives uh, the caffeine enough time to get out of your system, number one, and number two. to not uh, have that big of an effect on your ability to fall asleep or the quality of the sleep that you're getting. Many people out there can fall asleep with caffeine on board, but the quality of that sleep might be suspect.
0: Yeah, I used to say for years, oh, I could drink coffee at, you know, two in the morning and go to sleep. And I would. But, you know, now that I've gotten older, I'm in my 40s, um, my sleep quality was just not very good. So now I'll stop about eight hours before bedtime and then I sleep much better, I noticed. So you know exactly. You used to be proud of it, but you know, hey, you got to improve your sleep, so you feel a lot better. Um, I would think you know, all right. So those are great suggestions to help people sleep better. But I'm sure that uh, misconceptions like are tremendously pervasive in the sleep world. So can you cover a few that make you you know roll your eyes and and that people really need to disabuse themselves of? Yeah, m- myths or misconceptions, urban myths, whatever you want to call them, right? That are harmful to yep. sleep.
1: Sure. So the biggest one is the eight hour, right? Um, And so for sure, here's what I can tell you is that, you know, eight hours is not what everybody needs. Um, That will vary from people from, and it'll also vary across your lifetime. As you get older, you might need more, you might need less. As you become more medically frail, you might need more, you might need less. There's lots of differences there. So that's certainly one sleep myth. Um, Another sleep myth is that sleep before midnight is better than sleep after midnight. There's absolutely no clinical data to suggest that there's any truth to that idea whatsoever. Um, Another big one has to do with turkey. So people say, well, if you eat a turkey sandwich, it'll help you fall asleep. You'd actually have to eat a 26 pound turkey in order to get enough tryptophan in you. And by the way, tryptophan doesn't work well in the presence of protein. So even if you did eat a 26 pound turkey, it's still not gonna give you enough uh, to to really make a big difference. Um, The big thing that people need to remember is that carbohydrates do make you feel sleepy. And so it's not a bad idea to have a small carb- carbohydrate snack before bed because that can actually be really helpful for sleep. So, you know, I would argue that in a lot of cases, the myths that that are out there are really just that. They are ideas that have been passed around that really don't have a tremendous amount of scientific value behind them. Are there
0: any... Uh any supplements that would help you sleep? Like, is it a good idea to take melatonin before you sleep or 5-HTP or, like you said, a little bit of carbs? You know, what's good, what's bad?
1: Sure. So, I mean, here's what I can tell you um, as far as um, that is, if you're looking at supplementation, the first thing I look at is uh, magnesium. Almost everybody out there is deficient in magnesium, and magnesium can be incredibly helpful for sleep. Um, There are several supplements that are on the marketplace that are available for magnesium. Personally, I get my magnesium from bananas. Uh, It turns out that bananas are loaded with magnesium, but the peel is actually three, has got almost three times the amount of magnesium as the fruit itself. So I have people take an organically grown banana, wash it off, cut off the tip and the stem, but leave the fruit in it and the peel on it. And then drop it into about three cups of boiling water and boil it for three minutes and then drink the water. It's loaded with magnesium. It's a great, I call it banana tea. It's a great way to be helpful for people. And it's a good way to get your magnesium naturally. Um, If people don't prefer bananas or don't like bananas, um, then um, there are definitely some powders out available for magnesium citrate um, or magnesium tartrate. Both of those can be helpful. Different people react differently to those. Be careful about overloading on magnesium because it can cause diarrhea. uh, If you have too much of it, in your system, uh, that's the first thing I check on. The next thing I check on is vitamin D, which is also something that many people are deficient in. Vitamin D uh, helps regulate the sleep cycles. You take that in the morning time. Uh, about, you know, talk with your doctor, but uh, many uh, many people are taking around 5,000 international units. So um, that part will work. Uh, that seems to work well. That's usually where I start people. Melatonin. Is really not a sleep initiator; it's a sleep regulator. So, and by the way, it's a hormone. You wouldn't just walk down to the local, you know, uh, health food store and buy testosterone or estrogen. Um, so, why can you do it with melatonin? Well, it's not regulated by the FDA, so there's always purity standards that I'm worried about. But it's also 95% of the melatonin today is sold in an overdosage format. The appropriate dose is somewhere between a half and one and a half milligrams. Uh, most of it is sold in three, five, and ten. Uh, which is not necessarily a good idea. Many people, by the way, also have a reaction to overdosing of melatonin with crazy dreams. Also, melatonin can have an effect on blood pressure medication, so people need to be careful with that. Um, But melatonin is not a sleep initiator. Again, it's a sleep regulator. So melatonin is great for jet lag, uh, but it's not necessarily good for insomnia. So that's not necessarily something that I recommend in a lot of my patients. However, if you're over the age of 50, 55, that's when we do start to see, at least on occasion, some uh, reduction in the production of melatonin. And so oftentimes, that's what I'm working with people on, is we measure their melatonin and decide if they have a deficiency, and then from there, move forward.
0: And how good of a quality of sleep is possible? Should people just keep tweaking and tweaking until like they... They wake up feeling amazing. Is that even reasonable? Or at what point? Should well, you here's their the. Sleep?
1: I think that's a great question. Here's the truth of the matter: is uh, you're never going to sleep the same as you did when you were 18 years old. Okay, if, if you're 40, it just isn't going to happen that way. The body doesn't work that way. Um, can you continue to improve your sleep? Yes. Is it an ever continuing process? It shouldn't be you should be once you kind of lock and load in a good sleep routine and a good uh, you're happy with your the results you wake up and feel refreshed and ready to meet the day, you've probably hit your you know your level of good sleep.
0: okay, I just wanted to wonder how far people should push it
1: yeah
0: um, any, it any, really I mean, depends on the better. individual
1: I mean I've got some people who have major depression, we fix their sleep and all of a sudden they no longer need to be on depression medication. I've got some people Hmm. who've got anxiety disorders. Once we fix their sleep, they no longer have to be on their anxiety medication. So, you know, if we stopped earlier, maybe they wouldn't get to have that as a result. So it's different for different people. It's really a good discussion though to have with your doctor to try to figure out what works for you.
0: And if people are having issues, I mean, their general practitioner probably wouldn't be aware of these things so they should seek out literally a sleep doctor? Is that what they're called?
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah, absolutely. Like if you go to the Google, you can type in sleep doctor and, um, or sleep doctor near me, and you'll be able to find people who are just like me, board certified in sleep medicine, um, to be able to uh, clinical sleep disorders, be able to um, help you out with some of these things. But I will be honest with you, most sleep specialists out there are apnea doctors meaning they just test people for sleep apnea. That's the only thing that they're really interested in treating um, and that's what they do. Um, Very few people are like me in that I treat the whole body. I treat insomnia, I treat apnea, I treat narcolepsy. I try to not use pharmaceutical intervention. I try to use um, more of a natural or supplementation routine uh, for people because most people really don't like the idea of being on drugs and neither do I.
0: Yeah, I've heard for instance like sleeping pills Knock you out. They don't really help you sleep. They just make you unconscious in this non-restful state. Yeah,
1: it depends upon the pill. So the old school sleeping pills, what we call the benzodiazepines, that's correct. It basically puts you into a state of unconsciousness, which mimicked but wasn't exactly the way sleep would be. Um, that being said, we also see um, that the newer drugs have less of an effect on what we call sleep architecture. Um, so what we see here is that there's less of a likelihood of it messing up your sleep with some of the newer medications, but the truth of the matter is is while sleep medications definitely hold an appropriate place uh, for many medical conditions or mental health conditions, a lot of people out there don't really need to be taking a pill to go to sleep. Uh, I can teach people how to sleep pretty easily and get them off those pills, and uh, it has a tendency to work out quite well.
0: So if most sleep doctors just concern themselves with apnea, I guess you just have to call and ask. Um, But is is there a name for what you do versus a traditional sleep doctor that just looks at, again, apnea?
1: Um, Unfortunately not. What you really would want to look for, I I can tell you this, um, almost every accredited sleep center in the United States has a PhD sleep specialist like myself associated with them. They might not work there full time, but they'll be associated. So if you go to an accredited center, you should be able to ask for the PhD sleep psychologist and those people have a tendency to be more along the lines of like what I do.
0: Okay, so it's it's uh, the psychology of it is an important element, not just uh, okay. Makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. Hmm. All right. Well, very really good. So um, there's a lot of resources you've created over time. So what are some recommendations for listeners? You know, they can you mentioned a the blog. There's a lot of books you've authored. How can they start to uh, learn about sleep and how to improve their own sleep?
1: Well, I would say absolutely head on over to my website, thesleepdoctor.com. I've got hundreds of articles over there in my blog section. You can type in almost anything. Um, I've got blogs on different supplements. I've got blogs on what do you do if you wake up in the middle of the night? What do you do if you and your bed partner don't go to sleep at the same time? Like top questions that I get asked. Um, But there is a section, and I'd love to give everybody a quick five-point plan of the five things that you can do today that can help improve your sleep tonight. So okay, step yeah, number one ahead. is to keep a consistent wake-up schedule. So even on the weekends, and I know that kind of stinks, even on the weekends, I want you waking up at the exact same time. Again, this helps keep your circadian rhythm in line and works helps your body work out better. Step number two is to stop caffeine by 2 p.m. Um, I give you a very particular time. Caffeine's got a half-life of six to eight hours. So that way it doesn't have an effect later on with your ability to try to fall asleep. Step number three has to do with alcohol. There's a really big difference between going to sleep and passing out. Um, lots of people can recognize that as a difference, but don't see about it that way. Alcohol is the number one sleep aid in the world. So, and by the way, it's not very healthy for you. So we have to find ways to get people to sleep better without the use of alcohol, But. Lots of people still like to drink, so I don't have a problem if you want to have a couple of glasses of wine with dinner, but you really want to stop alcohol roughly three hours before lights out. This will give your body time to digest, and you won't have too much in your system, which would have a a bad effect on the quality of the sleep that you're getting. Step number four is exercise. I tell everybody to exercise daily, but you want to be careful and not exercise too close to bedtime. In fact, if you're within four hours of bed, sometimes uh, exercise can be very disruptive of sleep. So stop exercise roughly four hours before bed. And step number five is every morning within 15 minutes of waking up, you wanna get about 15 minutes of sunlight. Again, this resets your circadian clock and really helps you out. So in, in summary, step one, stick to one schedule. Step two, stop caffeine by 2 p.m. Step three, stop alcohol three hours before bed. Step four: Stop exercise four hours before bed. And step five is to get 15 minutes of sunlight every morning.
0: All right, that's great. So that's, that's a really good start for people. So they should visit
1: thesleepdoctor.com. And uh, yeah, Dr. Bruce, I really appreciate you coming. This has been great. My pleasure. Happy to happy to do it and happy to come on again if people've got more questions. You have been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner,
0: Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast both to review and discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing,
1: blockchain, virtual reality, and more.